That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those that were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Last week in our fellowship hall Sunday school class, and by the way, we have some wonderful Sunday school classes. 
And so I hope you are taking advantage of that opportunity to learn the scriptures yourself. But in one of our two adult classes, Brendan reminded us that our Bibles are a mixture of propositions, of poetry, and of prophecy, and also of narratives. In the poetry and narrative sections, it's especially important for us to remember what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. When the Holy Spirit is telling and when he is commanding. Today's text is one of those telling passages where the relevance to our application is rather nuanced. It doesn't say specifically, go do this, or stop doing that. Our application has to draw out. Luke describes events that we have to contemplate. And then we consider how we need to change our lives to best glorify God as pictured in the narrative. By the time Luke is writing this gospel... Several years have passed since the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is clear to Luke that Jesus has not come back yet. So Luke figures Jesus must have had some plans for us between the resurrection and heaven. One term the Bible uses to describe our lifestyle on earth, between the resurrection and heaven, is our walk. The 1970 Christmas movie tried to tell us that walking is just a matter of put one foot in front of the other. But 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, calls us to walk in a particular way. It's not as simple as just putting a foot in front of the other. Because 1 Thessalonians 2.12 tells us that we, Paul and his uh, cohort, exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Today's text demonstrates for us at least four different ways to walk. And the first is an unaccompanied walk. The story opens with two travelers on a road. And we read later in the narrative that they knew Jesus to be a mighty prophet, verse 19, But he had disappointed them, verse 21. In verses 22 through 24, they include themselves with the disciples, so they probably had an awareness of God as creator and supreme. But to them, as they walked down the dusty road, the Father God was distant The Spirit of God had not yet come, and to their understanding, Jesus was nowhere to be seen. They were walking on earth as if God was not present and as 
and as if God did not care. Doesn't that sound like many of our neighbors? They have some concept of a higher power. They've never felt the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, just the idea of a spirit is kind of spooky. And to them, Jesus is some guy who lived and died, but is nowhere to be seen. Well, compared to this unaccompanied walk, the next walk is not much better. It is what I like to call an uninformed walk. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus appears, but he supernaturally keeps the two from knowing who he is. And as the two are talking with one another, Jesus asks them what they were talking about. And one, by the name of Cleopas, incredulously asked, don't you know what happened? I think Cleopas made the mistake that many of us make to this day. We assume that other people know what we know. And conflict arises when we assume that other people see situations the same way that we see them. One of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. It's a story of a high school in Virginia where a predominantly African-American school and a predominantly white school were combined and the football team had to learn to work together if they expected to win. And in one scene, after a victory, Sunshine, a white boy from California who was on the team, wants to take a couple of his black teammates into a diner for a burger. But the African-American players had been discriminated before. They knew the trouble that would arise if these black boys went into the Virginia diner that was owned by a white man. But the white boy says, oh, come on in. It, it can't be that big of a deal. Come on in and have a burger with me. After all, I'm buying. And the boys are humiliated when the restaurant manager refuses service. And he tells them, if you want anything to eat, you go around to the alley and knock on the door in the alley and they'll give you some food. The boys are humiliated when this manager refuses service. But because Sunshine had never personally experienced that level of racism, he was blissfully naive. He just assumed everyone goes into a diner to get a burger. But yet those two boys had never known what it was like to be served in a diner. And Sunshine never knew what it was like to not be served in a restaurant. And just as Sunshine needed his eyes to be opened, there are many around us that we assume they know what we know, but there are those around us who will never place their trust in Christ unless we tell them. 
Because there are a lot of crazy ideas out there in the name of Christianity. And you and I have neighbors who have many wrong ideas about what is required to enter into heaven. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 14 tells us explicitly, How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We can't just assume that other people know. As Cleopas assumed, everybody knew the same facts that he had seen. See, there are people around us who are walking far away from God. There are people around us who are uninformed of, the, of Jesus and his gospel. But the third walk is for those who learned what Jesus taught on the mountain. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, taught what it means to live and unencumbered walk. He talked about those who strive after the things of this world and this life. And Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things will be added as well. See, the unencumbered life is a life where we put Christ first rather than being consumed by the things of this life. Back in Luke chapter 9, several said that they wanted to follow Jesus, but there were other priorities they had to handle first. And the details of this life can easily distract us from God's higher purpose. Because Cleopas had an earthly perspective. Cleopas described for Jesus what had happened the previous week from a purely earthly point of view. Everything he said was true, but it was purely an earthly point of view. It's like he was giving a news report. report. He gave the who, what, where, when, and why. But their limited understanding left them with disappointment and crushed hopes. We had hoped that Jesus was going to, but he didn't. And so they were left with crushed hopes because they had an earthly perspective. See, Cleopas's summary misses the point of view that Jesus was playing a part in an eternal plan as we see in verses 25 through 26. Verse 25 says that when Jesus came to earth, it's not like he was taken captive and he had no say in his death. Jesus says, if you want to understand the events of last week, you have to listen to the prophecy in verse 25. Jesus had said at least three times that Luke records that earthly suffering would lead to a glorious result, which we see in verse 26. 
And then in verse 27, we have the importance of proclamation. See, Jesus' coming was part of a prophetic plan that needs to be proclaimed to others. In the Fellowship Hall Sunday School, again, I've got to plug the class that I attend because I know it better, but both of our classes are excellent. In that class, we just looked at things that are recorded by Moses that pointed forward to a time when Jesus would come as the Redeemer. In the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God had eternal plans to ransom mankind from sin. But notice with me verse 28. As they approached Emmaus, the town where they were headed, Jesus acted as if he were going further. See, Jesus had told these two the plan that God had in place. Not plan B, but God's original and perfect plan. But after Jesus told these two, Jesus knew there are others who need to hear the plan. He was prepared to keep on going and to keep on proclaiming that his death, burial, and resurrection were part of God's big plan. And when we look forward to Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, we see the spread of the gospel story as it is proclaimed in their town, in their region, and to the ends of the earth. Now we know from other scriptures that Jesus did go and tell others before he ascended. But here he decides to do more in-depth discipleship with these two. In the next six verses, the plan for our Christian walk is displayed. For we saw an unaccompanied walk, we saw an uninformed walk, we saw a walk that was unencumbered by the things of this earth, but finally we see an uninhibited walk in verses 29 through 35. See, we are no longer inhibited by our shame and by our guilt. Because of what Christ accomplished, we are forgiven. And when we are forgiven, we are justified. It's just before God. And if we stand just before God, if we stand without shame, if we stand without guilt, we have the confidence to walk an uninhibited, free walk. Because I have seen over and over again that when we are forgiven, it liberates us. In John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, you will be what? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has what? So stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we also see in John chapter 10, verse 10, the second part of that verse says, I came that they might have life and have it what? See, God wants to forgive our sins, to take away our shame, and to liberate us to follow him with a clean conscience and with confidence. 
and with boldness. And he says in the following verses what it means to live an abundant life. The first thing that is required to live an abundant life is found in verse 30. It was fellowship. He just sat down and he broke a bread. And we don't know what else was on the table, but we can assume that there was meat. Right, Casey? <laughs> we, we can assume. But they gathered around the table and they broke bread as a sign of fellowship. Because we need each other. We need one another so that we can walk boldly as God calls us. But even though Jesus knew there were people who he needed to proclaim the gospel, Jesus actually takes an opportunity to drive a little bit deeper with these disciples in verse 32. He calls them to discipleship. And this is why we have small groups. This is why we have uh, men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. This is why we have uh, Sunday school classes for our children. This is why we have kids club and why we have youth group. It's because we need to be discipled. We need to learn the scriptures. For as they listened to Jesus tell the story, they saw all the way from back at Moses how God had a plan. And when Jesus told them what the scriptures mean, he says, did or not our hearts burn within us? They were excited to study the word of God because it was life-giving. And it was challenging. And then in verses 33 through 35, we see the importance of testimony. And my friend, if you prioritize fellowship with God's people, growth in his word, and telling others about him, you will experience the liberated, abundant life that God intends for us. Look at the testimony. For I, I, I see in front of us that at that same hour... Now, what did Luke say describe the day before they decided to have supper? Luke says, hey, it's, it's getting kind of late in the day. Don't go on to the next town. Go ahead and come in, have supper with us, spend the night with us, and then you can start a new day going. So it's what, 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, perhaps? But when I read the scripture in front of us, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And when they had grown in Christ, what was the response? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Emmaus is about seven miles away. So they had walked the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's late in the afternoon. The sun's probably setting down. But they had encountered Jesus in such a dynamic way. They said at that same hour, they turned around and they started the seven-mile walk back to Jerusalem. Because their testimony could not be contained. And when we fellowship with God's people and when we learn from his word about how much he loves us, our testimony cannot be contained. Because there are people in our neighborhoods, there are people in our workplace, there are people in our clubs, in our organizations that need to hear what Jesus has done 
in us. I noticed their testimony was at that same hour, but their testimony, all they did was they told what had happened. And the simplest testimony that any of us can tell has three simple points. The first point, what was I like before I met Jesus? And you can tell your story. What were you like before you met Jesus? Second point of your testimony, what Jesus did for me. That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again so that I could be forgiven of my guilt and my shame. He paid the debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. What was I like before? What did Jesus do for me? And the third point is simply, what my life has been like since I repented and believed. And my friends, any of us can tell that story because it's your story. Some around us are walking unaccompanied. They're away from God. Some around us are walking unaware of what Jesus' death accomplished. Some are walking unencumbered by the things of this life. And some are uninhibited in the freedom of the Spirit as they fellowship, as they are discipled, and as they tell their testimony. So that's what happened on the road to Emmaus, and in the house in Emmaus. But what about us? Ephesians chapter 5 says that we need to look carefully then how we are going to walk. Which of those four walks describes you? The story is told of a little boy who had just started school. And the first week of school, his father walked with him to show him the way to the school and to build his confidence to walk from home to the school. On Friday of that first week, the father praised his son for being so attentive to the crossing traffic and learning the way to school. And dad told his son on Friday of the first week of school, I think you're ready to do this alone on Monday. And the little guy was both excited that his father trusted him and somewhat somewhat frightened of that three-block walk to school alone. Well, Monday came. And the father hugged his son and waved goodbye as the little boy began his solo voyage to school. But upon arriving at school, the little boy turned around and he saw his father walking with a watchful eye a half a block behind him. The boy smiled to know that he was being guarded and he was kept safe should he make any wrong turns. And this followed each day for that second week. The third week of school began. And the boy said to his father, Dad, you don't need to follow me this week. I think I can do it on my own. I've got this. 
The first week, the two enjoyed companionship as they traveled together. The second week, the boy enjoyed the guardianship, but the father missed the companionship with his son. The third week, the boy asserted his independence. Dad, I can do this on my own. I've got this. But he got distracted by a puppy and he was late for school. Because there are people around us who tell God, never mind, I've got this. And they get distracted by the things of life and they miss the intended target. The book of Genesis records that God made us for companionship and that man and God walked together. By chapter 3, the father steps back and he allows Adam and Eve to walk and to make choices at a distance, yet under his watchful eye. And the first humans then chose to do life apart from God's companionship and care. And disaster happened. And it would require a sinless life and a horrific, innocent death to restore what was lost by the disastrous choices when man walked away from God. And today, and throughout this week, you face the same three choices. Will you walk in fellowship and enjoy God's companionship? Will you walk courageously, trusting that God's got your back? Or will you walk dangerously, arrogant, away from the love of companionship and care? Our final song for this morning is a newer song. It was only written 110 years ago. So for the first 1,900 years of the Christian church, they did not have this song to sing. But over the last century, it has become a favorite of some, and it's brought comfort to many more. As you choose which walk you're going to walk this week, let us meet Christ in the garden where he walks with us and he talks with us and he tells us we are his own.